Welcome to the Beers and Miles podcast, where we talk about beers, miles, and whatever else can imagine to jump off topic with. My name is Chris, and I'm joined this week with Nicole. Hi, Nicole. How's it going? Hey, I just waved at the camera, and I realized now that that was stupid. We're, we're all virtual today. We are all virtual. <laughs> well, living the COVID dream. Except for it's kind of a little bit more lax now, but, you know, um, I'm, I'm doing great. Yeah, and uh, we have a special guest this week, um, and I put it on Instagram's a couple stats. You can uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong with any of this stuff, but uh, we got a four-time HEPS champion, six-time NCAA qualifier, D1 All-American, um, and qualified for the Olympic trials, fi- tri- Olympic trials finals in the height of twice, and uh, highest finish was a fifth at the 2012 trials. Am I correct in that introduction there? That is, yeah, that's all correct. There we go. We got Justin Frick on the pod this week. How are you doing, buddy? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. You know, I can't complain. It's been a, it's been a long week. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Happy to be here. And, uh, yeah, as we start with every podcast, uh, we're just going to open a beer. So let's hope this doesn't blow up on it. And it didn't. Awesome. I'm drinking currently. Oh, sorry. We just had that drop. And I... A double fruited microwave. Don't microwave it, don't boil it. You drinking anything tonight? I am. I'm drinking um, a new IPA from Six Point Mind Control. Um, one of the more recent additions to the, the scaled up. Um, IPA Infinite Loop series they do. Um, not bad. It's got a ridiculous spread of hops in the bill, which is pretty cool. Um, maybe almost a little bit too much. It's, uh, it's a little cool in, in a good way. I think that was like one of the first beers that I ever had when I moved to like Midwest. Like that, just that um, the six point because their cans are always like super awesome and super tiny. They're like eleven ounce cans, I think. Twelve, yeah. They're um, it was. It's always great. Um, I mean, they they look like Red Bull cans. So I you can. I mean, right. not that anyone. Yeah, not that anyone in New York really cares about open container most of the time, but I I've definitely just drank these beers on the subway before and <laughs> never had it. Hey, it's the Red Bull. It's a coffee Red Bull. We're good. <laughs> Literally, so we're, we're super happy to have you on the podcast. Uh, typically, we always have with some of these Elite Files kind of uh, podcasts, we always have runners. And this time, I want to shake it up a little bit. Uh, somebody, I mean, we've known each other for, at this point, like just gone from like different like, um, from, like forums and stuff. Like we've known each other for about at least 10 years here, uh, just from like going on yeah. Dicestat and different things like that. And uh, sorry about that. I have a new iPhone and it is awful to just hold up so if you hear dropping it's because i'm being an idiot and dropping that's not i'm not drunk yet we're not there um but yeah we uh we've known each other for about 10 years and and really like your story is fantastic like there's very few times that you can say i like that you know somebody that's been at the highest level in, in, in the u.s and especially as a distance runner like we typically split between like we split ourselves between like different event groups so like just a very interesting, interesting to see somebody that outside of the distance side that was so, 
I guess, popular and just so involved in the community. So we'd love to hear a little bit about uh, just to hear your story and, and how'd you get into, I guess, even high jumping? Yeah, I, um, it's funny. I, I was in elementary school. Um, I, our, I was in a summer camp and we had, had like an Olympic day sort of thing. And I did really well on the long jump. And I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, I, I, I'm, you know, I, I like jumping and this is fun. And one day maybe I'll do track. I knew my mom ran track when she was in high school. I mean, not very seriously, but she always, you know, talked about it. My grandfather actually um, ran in high school. He ran uh, at the Milrose Games when he was in high school what? Uh, in the 400 as part of a 4 by 14 um, So track was kind of always in my family's like discussion, uh, but it, you know, didn't necessarily, you know, nobody was overly successful in it. Um, I, so I went to middle school and we finally had a track team and I went out for the long jump and I was so excited and I went and did it and I was okay. But the second I did it, uh, our coach was like, you know, you should really come and try the high jump. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I started out in seventh grade and was kind of, you know, decent, uh, but not great um you know i was one of the better people on the team and that wasn't saying much necessarily uh, kind of you know going along doing okay went to high school and you know um my freshman year actually got injured so i didn't compete at all outdoor um sophomore year i competed a little bit and i i broke six feet and i thought that was such a, a cool thing to do um I didn't really have the context at that time for like, you know, there were people who were my age jumping way better than I was. Um, and so something clicked. Uh, I had a coach my junior year who like, you know, basically said, you're an athlete. You're not competing like an athlete. Like you just need to do these things and you can like, you know, really excel. So I went from jumping my sophomore year of high school. I jumped five, eight indoors my junior year, I jumped six, eight indoors. I went up a whole foot <laughs> oh, <laughs> in the crap. course of a year. Uh, and then, then jumped six, 10 outdoors and won the state title. Um, and so I went from like track being this fun thing that I was kind of okay at to yeah, being a state champion and getting recruited by colleges. And uh, it, it was just kind of a whirlwind to me at the time. Uh, but I, you know, I'd always really enjoyed it. And so I knew I wanted to commit to it and uh yeah took it from there to, to college grad school and well beyond so, so how was that yeah, was how was that process ride, but, uh, how was that process from that moment with that breakthrough going to um going to winning a state title and at this point now were, were people were coaches already reaching out to you before you won the state title yeah i guess um i before i won the outdoor title that year in, in jersey we have indoor track in the winter so i i um had finished I think I finished third that year or something along those lines. And at that point I was starting to get some attention from coaches. Um, but I actually met, uh, the man who went on to be my, my college coach, Fred Samara at Princeton. Um, after I won the, uh, the state title, he was actually, he was at the, it was at the New Jersey state meet. That was a local meet for him. So he was there and he actually, he somehow managed to find my parents while I was still competing. 
Um, and my, my parents love to tell this story. He just walked up to them, introduced himself, said, how are his grades? They said, oh, he, he's like pretty smart. And he just looked at them and said, he's coming to Princeton, and then walked away because I, he was still like, <laughs> I, he, I was too young for him to talk to me. Um, I, and he had to like, my coach had to introduce me to him, um, had a conversation and knew pretty early on that was where I wanted to go. Um, and he, he was an Olympian himself. He was on, I, it was like the combination of, I mean, obviously I, I knew Princeton was a great school, um, but I never thought I would go there. Like I was smart, but I was never like, I didn't apply myself in high school at all. <laughs> I was, I was not a great student. I was a fine student. Um, I kind of always thought I'd just go to like some state school and do whatever. Um, but the idea of going to high school was like, holy shit, <laughs> this is, this is awful. That's crazy. Um, so that, that was, you know, obviously amazing, but, um, yeah, so Fred, who I, you know, I ended up not only coached me for four years, but I then later in life came back and worked for him for four years as an assistant coach. Um, he was an Olympian in the decathlon in 1980 in Montreal. It was Bruce Jenner's teammate. Um, you know, uh, he was actually, I have great stories. He was on an episode of keeping up with the Kardashians, which was great. Um, he might like college um, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a when before before Bruce became Caitlyn, um, the uh, the Kardashian sisters threw him a birthday. I think it was for his 60th birthday. I forget that, but they flew out um, his two teammates from Montreal, and so my my coach was on keeping up with the Kardashians. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, so he was a great athlete. Great coach. Um, he had coached an Olympian in the high jump, Tora Harris, who competed in Greece for the U.S. Uh, jumped seven seven when he was in college, and so I was like, "How, how could I turn down going to a place where, the, where there's you know, going to be great academics, a coach who's obviously proven that he can coach great high jumpers?" Um, so I looked at other places. Like I, I wanted to visit Duke. I wanted to visit a couple other places, but I, I knew pretty much from the beginning that I was going to go to Princeton. Um, yeah, and it was, it was a great decision. <laughs> you know, uh, there, there are times when I look back at my student loans and I go, was that really the right choice? But it, it definitely was. Now, did you have, like coming at a high school, did you have thoughts of, like, did you, did you think that you were going to be able to hit that next level? Like making, I mean, you, you go D1 is an accomplishment in itself, but the making the meet, making the NCAA meet. Um, that's, I mean, that's another level in its own. Was that something that you thought like right out of college or like, Hey, I'm going to be at that level too. Yeah. I, I, I think I went in, it's funny because probably I guess my, my junior year, no sophomore year of high school was when I found dice that too. And that was when I saw that like I was jumping six foot and there were dudes in Texas, Andre Manson jumped seven, seven that year. And I was like, there, there's no way that I'm going to be able to compete against these guys. Um, and so as I like, you know, it, I, I knew I was going to do well. Um, I knew I was going to you know, push myself, but I, I think I went in a little bit naive and in a positive way, like, let us see what happens. Like I had to train real hard and who knows, like I, I went from jumping five, eight to six, eight. And, you know, why can't I go from jumping six, 10 to seven, five in a couple of years? Who knows? Um, so I, I just, 
yeah, I, I went in pretty optimistic, but you know, not expecting anything either. Just kind of you know, knowing I was going to work hard and, and see where it took me. Um, and so I, I really thought, um, you know, after I jumped six tennis of junior in high school, I was like, seven feet is a, like the, the barrier in high jump. It's you know, like the four minute mile, although many more people jump seven feet than run four minutes. I think. Um, but it's just like that nice round number where it's like that clear barrier. Like, you know, once you get beyond that, you're in like a different class. And so I figured I was going to do it in high school, never did. Um, and it actually took me until uh, one of the last meets of my freshman year to like finally get there. But once that happened, I was like, okay, I, you know, I can start actually competing and, you know, uh, ended up yeah, qualifying for first sectionals my freshman year. Um, it went down with no real expectations of going against double Amy qualified and went that was at Sac state that year, which is like, it's an amazing track. I had never been to California for a meet before they have the whole like warm up track outside the regular track, which I thought was the coolest thing in the world. I was jumping against, yeah, Andre Manson, these guys, like Scott Sellers, who I looked up to when I was in high school. Um, Donald Thomas, who went on to be a multiple-time Olympian. Um, these views that like, I, I, I kind of idolized, and I was a little bit shell-shocked uh, when I got there. And the meet did not go well. But like having that experience, I think, early on, really prepared me. Like, okay, I'm going to you know, be uh, – I don't know if I'll ever win NCAAs or anything like that, but I'm going to be consistently competing against these guys. I need to get my act together getting starstruck and really kind of get, get into the, the thick of things when I'm around these people. Um, yeah. And it, it, I mean, I took it from there and you know, consistently um, made and still, I, I made every outdoor NCAA meet when I was in college, which was, I, I think, cool in and of itself. And, um, you know, I, I, along the way, I don't think as an undergrad, I hit, um, everything I wanted to. Um, I had some really high moments, um, but I also I had a stress fracture in my L4 and L5 vertebrae in my junior year, Ow. which was uh, not fun. <laughs> yeah. So I. Um, How does that happen? I had to, I took a medical red shirt. Uh, essentially, over I was overstressed. Um, I think I started to hurt it. Um, while I was, I lived in Japan for the summer between my sophomore and junior year. And I think that like whole summer, uh, not, uh, um, not doing any weight training and then coming back and training super hard. I think I it was a little bit imbalanced. Um, and yeah, just something about it. I also started to train a little bit for the multis that year as like a, um, not, not as a, you know, Full on commitment to it more as a way to score points for the team at the, you know, the, the Ivy League championships. Perhaps. Um, but at some point along that way, I think it was when I was learning pole vault, maybe that I just I jacked it up, and it was not comfortable. I had to wear a, um, I had to wear a plastic girdle <laughs> for like two months during the oh. summer. Uh, I like it, it looks like a. Um, like a, like a corset that you, you see in like uh, old, old movies and women are trying to like fit into small dresses. It literally, it was, I was strapped into this thing around my, uh, my whole torso for a couple months. Like you were like a Renaissance man. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Um, 
I was really a Renaissance woman, probably. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that really but, uh, worked back then. I don't know, though. You know, yeah. if they did, then good for them. <laughs> so it sounds like the yeah. sack meet, like, kind of really changed how you trained. Like, that was kind of like your, yeah. like, how did you change your training after that to try to get to that next level? You know, I, um, I started to be a little bit more serious about the, um, the things outside of, you know, just jumping day in, day out. Um, I, th- I started studying the sport a little bit more, um, tried to really educate myself about, you know, how I could, you know, essentially in high jump, there are only a couple of ways to, to continue to improve. There's getting stronger, there's getting faster, which are obviously intertwined and there's getting better technically. Um, some, there are some jumpers who are not great technically, but who are really fast and powerful. And so they're good. Um, yeah, there are some jumpers who are really technical, not very fast, but are very powerful. And so they're good for that reason. And, and I was trying to figure out what, what balance, um, I struck that would let me continue to, uh, get better. And I realized, you know, I'm like fast ish, but I'm not, I'm never going to be a, uh, you know, a sub 11 guy really in the hundred probably uh, strong, but I was never the strongest. So I had to get better technically um, and also work on the other stuff too. And just kind of systematically started to work on that. And I mean, as distance runners and I think a lot of people that listen to this are all runners. Um, what did a typical day of practice look for you? Or like, I guess a typical couple days. Cause from what I remember from when I was in, when I was in grad school, um, and I would watch over to like, see where like college people practice, like it's very different. Like you guys, like you, you would, I think from a distance from perspective, that's really naive. It's like, oh, you guys just jump and that's it. And it's like, there's probably more to that than what you guys do. Yeah, well, there definitely is. I mean, if we just jumped every day, my body would be beat to shit. Jumping is a super hard impact. Like. Your, your body is not really meant to put all of its weight into, uh, you know, uh, impetus to try to throw yourself over a bar seven feet in the air. And so there's, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, strength training, but in not just in the weight room, you know, plyometrics, um, working on like a very functional strength. So like event specific stuff. Um, we had some really cool drills for that, uh, technique wise, uh, and yeah, perfecting technique, getting to, you know, maybe not on like, I, I think the, the parallel and technique, um, to running would be like, yeah, obviously once you find the right, like cadence, stride, carriage for body for running, like things just get a little bit easier. You know, I, now that I'm uh, an old man and a retired high jumper and doing some more running myself, I, you know, I think about those things when I run and it's, it's not dissimilar that like the more you just practice, like I, I've probably run my high jump approach. I mean, it, it changes every year, uh, or, or a little bit, but I would run it like easily, let's say 5,000 times um, over the course of a season. Uh, maybe that, uh, that's a little bit aggressive. Maybe maybe a thousand times. But I would just constantly run my approach without taking a jump because just 
getting the muscle memory into your system so that when you go to actually do the thing, it's like second nature. Um, and your body knows what it's doing and it's, it's, you know, you don't have to think about it. You just do it. So there's, yeah, all, all kinds of ways to just, you know, inch forward. Um, running is part of it, but you know, obviously it's a little bit less of a, um, less of a focus for high jumpers and even just things like working on proprioception and like understanding where your body is in space and how to control it. Um, we do a whole bunch of drills for stuff like that, which is kind of strange, but you know, at the end of the day, when you're like in, when, after, after you take a jump, like after I, I hit the takeoff, I'm in the air. Um, there really aren't that many things you can do to affect uh, your jump, it, it's mostly done at that point, but there are little minute tricks you can uh, have in your arsenal to, you know, if you say I had a, a shitty approach, um, my takeoff wasn't great, but the bar is low enough. I can I can have a couple cheats in my uh, <laughs> in my pocket to make sure I still clear a bar. Uh, um, so yeah, just working on all the, like the the little technical aspects that are yeah they don't always come in handy, but when they do, it it can save you. I, I remember, it, I don't know why, but this brought me back to, we did middle school, a middle school like Olympics, and somehow we had a high jump pit. And it was like, they had us all doing high jump, and I cleared a bar, and it was probably one of the coolest feelings I've ever felt. It was like, I flew for like, and it's only like, probably the bar was probably only like four feet. It was like, yes! Yeah. <laughs> so I could only imagine that like six feet, it. seven feet, just like clearing that and just going... Crazy. Like what goes through your head when you're like up that high? Like, uh, you know, surprisingly, a lot. Uh, it, it is like, you know, time does slow down a little bit. Um, it almost feels like like the Matrix with bullet time, and they're <laughs> kind of you. You can when you take a good jump, especially. Sometimes you just like it. No, but, like that. It, but when you when you hit a really good jump, it is really like time slows down uh i mean obviously you're, you're thinking about some of the little things like okay i really need to make sure i'm like you know one of the biggest things is keeping your your shoulders aligned and not letting your arms drift towards the bar too early um at, after takeoff because you can you know kind of get too close to it making sure you're arching your back properly clearing your feet um all these little things but you, you can't really i mean like i said you, you can only actively think of those things for you know a split second and it doesn't necessarily do that much it's so much just rote memory uh but it, it really does feel um like you're suspended in animation sometimes when you, when you hit a great jump um and it, it's one of the best feelings in the world because a lot of times high jumpers like if you hit your takeoff perfectly you know it the second you take off and you like yeah, you know you're going to clear the bar before you even get into the pit it's that's yeah it's great <laughs> we had uh we had a guy so we had a guy at tiffin that uh he cleared it's seven foot two two and a quarter and i remember when i was watching it and when i would watch him there's ever so often like and just ever so often watching high jumpers you skin that bar but it stays on how is that feeling yeah. It's, we call it bar love. You're getting bar love. You're not getting bar love. Um, it's, 
a great feeling when you get it and it's a shitty feeling when you don't. Um, but yeah, it, it's, um, you know, one of those things where it's funny too. And if, if you watch like high school jumpers, uh, there's always this, like, like, I don't even know what I would call it, like a rumor or something like the idea that like, if you're out of the pit before the bar falls, it counts as a mate, which is not true. That's not the <laughs> field at all. If the bar falls, it falls. Um, but yeah, there, there's this split moment. Usually, especially when you're more accomplished people, um, like you, you have an idea, generally speaking, if the bar is going to stay on or not. But um, yeah, it's it can be nerve wracking. It can be fun. And um, sometimes you like one of the one of the, the funniest things is when you're you know, you, you pick your opening height and you start, you know, working a progression and sometimes at a lower bar where you're still warming up, you'll graze it and you'll feel it and just land in the pit and look at the, like, just hold your hands and like, what the fuck just happened? Why did I, like, what did I do wrong? Um, but you can, yeah, as long as it stays up, it feels fine. <laughs> so that's, that's another question I wanted to know, like, because one thing that I really, I loved about track and field and one thing that I got insulted when I was, early in, in college, but thankfully like both teams that I was on were very much a full track team. And we were always cheering on for every part of the, every part of the team, whether it was the jumpers, the pole vaulters, the throwers. I loved watching each action because like there's always so much technique to it. And there's always so many uh, nuances to it. One thing that I've always wondered is like, when you guys pick your opening height, do you guys pick it before like, the event starts or seeing how many people will start at the opening height. Um, do you guys, do you and your coach talk about it beforehand? Do things change in like last seconds? Like, well, Hey, a lot of people are out earlier or, or, or maybe even like wins picking up. Do I change when I'm going to start my opening height? Yeah. So it's, it's partially dependent upon like if it's a big field, it's a small field, you know, the, the kind of, you know, how you're feeling it can change from meet to meet um generally speaking uh you know you, you want to come in at a height that is going to be fairly easy to make but um not so that you're going to waste your energy uh and if there are a lot of people jumping like i remember god in college we have these big invites there'd be like 40 jumpers on the um on the list i would come in at a higher bar because i would know that like if i you know if i come in at two meters or 205, which is like six, six and three quarters or, mm-hmm. or six, eight quarter. Um, you know, a lot of those guys are going to be out already. And so that might be a more aggressive bar for me to start at, but I'm not going to have to wait for half an hour between my jumps, which is ha- which happens sometimes in those days, which is also kind of crazy that like, so you, have you have to re-warm really up at that point. Air, like, yeah, exactly. Or, or I would warm up, like I would do a little bit of a warm up, and then while the other people were competing, I would just keep warming up. like not not sit there i would just like walk away do my own thing and then come back when i was ready um so it it really depends but generally like especially you know when i was jumping professionally um and in you know some of the later in my career you you pick a bar that you know you're probably gonna make but every you know when you're at the elite level, um, you probably have somewhere between eight to 12 really good jumps in you. Um, 12 is actually a lot. So you need to think, like, start meeting that out. Like, okay, if my goal is to jump, 
uh, two meters 25, you know, seven, four and a half inch. Yeah. Um, and the bar goes up five centimeters every time. So it's, or even three, depending upon, usually it also, the intervals change. Um, you work backwards and think like, okay, I'm going to, it's going to take me, you know, assuming I clear first time, I want to have like three heights before I get to the height that I really want to attack. Yeah. And then that is where I like, I want to have some in the tank, but you also don't want to come in so high if you're not feeling great warming up that you, you know, screw up. And the other thing is once you, um, so you have to pass a height to, um, to come in at a later height. Mm-hmm. Once you do that, you're not allowed to go back down, but you can always pass further heights. Yeah. So sometimes you're like, you know, I would like tell a, a rep, like, Oh, I'm going to come in at, you know, two meters or whatever. And then I would see how many people were left and like, Oh, you know, I'm going to pass this bar after all. Yeah. You can always like keep going. Up. Yeah. Cause then you just so know height. Hi jumping is like singular, right? Raising the bar. <laughs> God. Uh, Jeez, you're waiting for that one. How long were you waiting for that one? I have been waiting for that since we started talking about high jump. <laughs> oh my God. Honestly. Yeah, it, it almost seems like it, it, it almost seems like it's tactical gambling gambling in some cases. Like yeah, every time for I see sure. every time um, I see this happen, I'm like, you're kinda hoping that I mean, has it ever happened to you where like you're coming in and like let's say weather's totally fine and then as soon as you get up wood picks up and it's like well shit yeah no that's that's definitely happened i think um or you know it's uh fine and then all of a sudden starts raining rain is the uh always the concern for high jump because it's just like mentally when you're running on a curve and really like pushing your body, like essentially when you're running a high jump approach, you're, you're, I mean, your body is slanted and you're putting a lot of like force into the ground at an angle. And if you don't have the confidence that you're not going to slip, <laughs> it can be really rough. And a lot of, a lot of people mess up um, in the rain. Um, actually, both times I jumped in the Olympic trials, it was in the rain, which was, um, so, so definitely would you say that is the biggest challenge then for high jump? Um, it, it can be. Uh, it, it's definitely a bigger factor, I think, than in a lot of other events. Um, you know, it, it's the wind can definitely like the wind can knock the bar off the stands, and um, you can there there is some leeway for officials to like allow for that, but it's still very annoying. And if you're running your approach, like you have this dialed in approach that you run from the same spot every time, if you're running into a headwind, it can really throw you off. Um, yeah, rain is god awful. No one likes jumping in the rain. Um, it, it's probably yeah, one of the one of the biggest for that and facilities. So it's less of a concern, obviously, at like a high level. You know, you're whenever you're competing, I should say most of the time when you compete at the whole year going to tracks that have good facilities, good high jump aprons. But like I would go to some of these all comer meets um, when I was training just to like get a, get some repetitions and basically treat it as a practice. And I would be starting my approach on the grass, having to run onto a track surface, um, Yikes. which is yeah, never fun. That's or legit like high jump cross country. <laughs> yeah. 
There was um when I was when I was in grad school at Oregon, uh, the Pac tens were at uh, Arizona U of A, and they um, one of the jumpers actually pulled up a chunk off the track on the apron while he was it was like there was like a bubble and he like stepped in it and just ripped out a chunk what? of track. It was Did he like yeah, it was ridiculous. Not miss a beat. Yeah. No, he, he like completely messed up, but they ended up giving him another jump because of it. Um, but yeah, it, like things like that can obviously mess you up. Um, or if there's like a, an uphill or downhill slant to the high jump apron, um, if you have to, I mean, there's if you ever watch like professional meets, a lot of the times guys take long approaches and their approaches are on the track somewhere. Or that happened happen to me all the time. And so, like, you have to wait for, you know, event, like, running events to go by you if they're going out at the same time. Yeah, I see so it in Europe all the time. Like mentally block that out. I, yeah. I see it in some of the European means. You would think at, like, a Diamond League meet, like, the, like, pinnacle would be fucking smart. Like, you wouldn't have to be doing that. But sure enough, there are three yeah, Ks going yeah. on, and you have to wait for the high jump to... That's ridiculous. So yeah, there's also there's such a variance because like some people approach the bar from you know fifty feet back, some people walk into an approach that's hundred feet away. Like Mutaz Barshim, I, I don't know what his measurements are, but I would be willing to bet he his he has a mark that's probably over hundred feet away from <laughs> the pit. His his approach is so it's a very like he walks into it, it's a long, complicated approach. But he, like, there's, there's no track that is meant to accommodate his approach. How long? I mean, with that being said, just seeing from people doing like even long jump and getting their marks, I'm like, how, how long into your career did you figure out where was your sweet spot, or was that something that changed on season to season? Changes all the time, uh, especially in high jump because you have the you know th- th- there are two dimensions to it the the width and the depth you know how far out from the standard you are and how far back. Um, there were times when I took a wider approach. There were times when I took a skinnier approach, um, and it like has a drastic effect on the angle you're coming in at. Um, so I eventually. I, I would say the last couple of years of my career, I, I started going a little bit wider at one point, partially because I was having ankle issues. Um, and, you know, so I, I would, I, I, I think when I, I messed around with going as wide as 15 feet, but I ended up settling around 12 and 13, like between 12 and 13 feet out from the standard then between 65 and 70 feet back. Um, 72, I think, was the longest I ever went for a 10-step approach. Um, but yeah, it's there's a lot of yeah, a lot of tweaking that happens there, <laughs> even mid meet sometimes. Um, you know, if you're, uh, you know, again, weather weather related. If if you're feeling good and it's warm out, you back up a little bit because you're looser and you're going to run a little better. If it's cold out, you scoot in a little bit because you're going to be tighter. Um, you know, if it's raining you uh there's nothing i guess you really need to change it but wind can change it yeah if you have a tailwind you know you have to take that into account it can yeah, change during a meet all the time that's fascinating i that is always like i've always wanted to get more into 
knowing the like little intricacies to this because there everything's so technical. I think with every sport and every event within track and field, and that was always an event that like I saw a little bit and had some teammates that did it. Seeing seeing some of those intricacies is amazing. Um, so let, let's let's cap off college. Let's cap off undergrad. What was your uh, let's pick out let's pick out two highlights from your 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 college. It doesn't have to be like winning. It just has to be the most memorable two memorable most memorable highlights that you had at Princeton. Uh, so the what I would say we we won the our, our biggest rivals um, in the league were Cornell. They they're a really good back team, and I had uh, a guy who actually became a good friend of mine um, after college. It was my biggest rival uh who was a year ahead of me at cornell we had some great battles at the the heps meets over the years uh, but my my junior year indoor um which was when i was injured actually i was i was jumping through injury at, at that point and uh he was too at the time i didn't know it but um i was jumping well he he liked to come in high so um, I was clearing every bar first attempt and he was just having to keep passing bars to hope that he could beat me. Um, and I cleared a PR, uh, it was actually my, my college PR two meters, 27, two and a half inch. Um, and he like, just uh, he couldn't touch me that day. <laughs> it, it felt so good to just like thoroughly, like, be, sorry, Garrett, if you're listening to this, you're a great guy, but kicking, kicking your ass that day felt so good. Um, so that was, yeah, it's definitely one of the most memorable um, meets. Uh, I think the other one is probably my, my senior year indoor. Um, you know, we hadn't won an indoor meet since my freshman year, come second and I was, you know, really working my ass off to make sure as a team we got there. And I actually ended up doing the um, heptathlon in addition to the high jump at the meet. Oh. My first ever heptathlon. Wow. At, um, and the high jump and the pole bolts were going on at the same time. So the pole bolt for the heptathlon and the open high jump were going on at the same time. I ended up no hiding in the pole vault because I have been back and forth and my shoes and I just like, my mind was all over the place. Oh, that was oh. devastating. It was absolutely devastating. But I came back, I was having a shitty time in the high jump, but I was like, I just need to get here, get the points, get the team to where we need to go. Um, and I had, I had a, a training partner who um, was my same year. And we had always been like really great um, friends and training partners together. Um, and after, I guess, sophomore year, I had kind of kept going and he'd kind of leveled out a little bit. Uh, but that day he was having the meat of his life and he actually won and I got second place. And the two of us standing there at the top of the podium, one, two, knowing that Princeton had pretty much wrapped up the meat at that point as a team. That's awesome. It was just absolutely one of the, like, I, as much as I, uh, you know, Track individual sport, you know, yeah. you always want to have your best performance and you know compete against yourself. But one of the things that the, I, I know that a lot of 
leagues are, you know, some leagues are more competitive than others internally. The Ivy League is, I think, one of the most internally competitive leagues um, in the country. Like people take Peps super seriously. I I noted I noticed to. I, I noticed that with so one of my college teammates from undergrad, um, he's an athletic trainer for Princeton now. Uh, he's been there, I think, since he's been there for a yeah, couple years. Yeah, and then him talking about like, and he's a great, great friend of mine from undergrad, and and him talking about them winning halves is like it's it's different than any D one conference because it's yeah. typically like for a lot of D one conferences, like let's go to the national league, but like. Exactly. The Ivy League, it's it's what's what happens. Yeah, when I when I went to the Pac tens when I was at Oregon, um, when I did my post grad year, I was so surprised that like, yeah, oh, people cared about winning Pac tens, but it was definitely like, okay, this is like where we go to get our qualifier mark to go to regionals. That was like number one priority on everybody's list. And then like, oh, if we win as a team, that's cool too. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's partially a thing because like. The, it's a little bit different now because uh, the Ivy League has actually gotten much better at track on a national stage over the last couple of years. Like there are lots and lots of people going to the national meet now. But when I was an undergrad, it was I was like still one of the outliers um, in terms of people qualifying. So a lot of people like that was their last meet. Like maybe the IC four days or ECACs after, but like yeah. it was the conference meet and that was that. And so everybody's like full focus was right there, um, and yeah, it is it, it is heated. It is heated. Um, I, I've seen grown men curse each other out. I've seen, <laughs> uh, I've seen grown men curse at athletes. Um, that, yeah, that was it is, it is intense. That was very much how it was for me in undergrad. We had we had a really weird system in our undergrad where we had uh, we had quad meets, so we had three quad meets mm-hmm. throughout the season, and so you traveled with one team and you competed against two or three others, and you would score individually against them, and so you do every event and you wouldn't score against one but you score against three, and it was a regular season the entire season, so like wow. it showed the depth of your your track team, and then at the end of the season you had yeah. the conference meet. Where like you scored it, just scored it with everybody, and so you had a regular season and then uh-huh. end of the season. So it was always like every awesome. everyone was like we were all. And I think that's what I what made me appreciate the other events so much was because we didn't have one conference meet. We had conference meets the entire season, and you had and and you have to have your high jumpers be on on point that day. You have to have your throwers be on point because you're competing against these teams and. If you lose that, if you lose one on one against that team, well, you're down to standings now for the entire season. And it's like, all right, we need yeah. to go undefeated coming into it because we know this certain team is a lot deeper than us. And then I get to I get to grad school, and it was the whole goal was just try to qualify for the just qualify for nationals. Yeah, and it's it's so interesting to see it. It's like because the same way it's like you go to you go to your quad meet, you go to your conference meet, and you have it's like war it's completely like war out there yeah. and it's like and i've had friends that like i'm friends with some of the like rival teams now like I, oh i got close with like the bono pits or the claron guys over the years and like when it came to race day it was like i remember going against a guy and he was like i beat one of their guys i wasn't supposed to beat, and he's like 
It's like, I love you, man, but I fucking hate you today. Like, don't even talk to me for the rest of the day. It's like, don't even talk to me for the rest of the day. I don't even want to hear it. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll talk to you tomorrow. I don't, I, I just don't like you today. <laughs> but I keep hearing that. I mean, yeah. I think that's something that I don't think is, is talked about enough in, in track and field is like these conferences and, and like the real spirit of like, especially what I hear with like Hefs, like I, I, I listened to a, a podcast with the, uh, I think it was like the tracksmith guy and he was doing a lot of videos back Uh in the day and talking about some of that stuff. And like, I think one of was following one of the teams in, and he might've been following one of the teams in, in, in Hefs and, and, or in the Ivy league. And I was like, this is, I mean, there's, I think there's a lot of stories behind some of these conferences and like just being a track nerd, I always hear about the Ivy League and maybe it's just Rojo. Is it Rojo yeah. that coached at Cornell? Or? Rojo and Weijo. Yeah. So uh, Weijo went to Princeton. Rojo went and coached at Cornell. I think I have that right. Yeah. Yeah. So hearing them talk about these things and like, I mean, there's always like, there's like a cult following. If you're part of it, like, it is still, it's still personal. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, oh, you get alumni who have no connection to the league who show up um, and, you know, been out of the sport for 30 years, but they'll still go to Heps to, to cheer on their team. Especially, like, you know, indoor gets held a lot at the Armory or up at uh, Harvard is a nice indoor track in Boston, so you have a lot of people who live in that area who will come up for it. But I like, you know, I've traveled to, um, yeah, I like drove myself to Yale one year just so I could like go watch the team, even though I wasn't coaching or competing anymore, just because I, I wanted to see the guys do well. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, uh, a bit of a cult, but it's a, a good one. <laughs> you don't ever leave it. <laughs> So you, it sounds like you had a, a fantastic time at Princeton. How, what made you go to Oregon? Like, what was? Yeah, so the Ivy League has a um, has a four year rule, uh, so you're not allowed to compete as a post grad in the Ivy League. Um, so when I had that uh, red shirt, I knew I had to go somewhere else, and I looked for a combination of academic and athletic. Uh, programming much like I did undergrad I wanted to go somewhere where I knew that there was a good coach who could kind of take me to the next level and also where you know, I wasn't going to throw my like grad school eligibility away on like nothing I wanted to get a degree out of it and do something with it um and so with a couple of his ultimately decided or I mean obviously Oregon has you know one of the best track teams in the country but at the time the uh, the coach who was in charge of the high jump was actually best friends with my coach at Princeton, <laughs> um, and so it like it made all the sense. We're like, oh, okay, I can just go get coached by Harry Mara, and that'll be great. Um, so I commit to going to Oregon. I'm going to graduate school for edu- education, one of the best public universities in the country for your educational degree. Super excited. Um, I get. I actually. Uh, the, Outdoor Nationals were held in Eugene that year. So I, I graduated on a Tuesday. I left for Nationals on a Thursday. 
and my grad school started the following Saturday. <laughs> in, in Eugene. So I like, when I went out for nationals, I just moved there. Um, oh, what? Crazy. And yeah, yeah, it was, it was so rad. Like I just, I, um, my parents came out for the meet. They brought a bunch of my stuff with them <laughs> and they stuck around for a couple days after we did like a little bit of a vacation. Uh, I'd already like found a room on Craigslist near campus. So I was like living in an apartment um, <laughs> for a couple of days. I think that school started. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was the weirdest, uh, weirdest introduction to Oregon. I don't think yeah, any, I don't think anyone also, has that kind of story. That's what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you just really so, plunge into so it. Random. Yeah. I also like, I decided to go to school there sight unseen. So like when I went there for nationals, that was my first time seeing Eugene. I was like, okay, wow. I'm going to live here for the next few years. This is pretty cool. <laughs> so did you like immediately fall in love with it? Did you get that like magical feeling or were you just like, oh, okay, yeah. cool. I live here now. <laughs> No, I, I, I mean, I, I'd never, um, I'd never been to Oregon before and I like, I, I really, uh, I, I think it's only grown since I went there, but I had an appreciation for the outdoors before going there. Mm. Oregon is one of the most stunningly beautiful country, states in the country. I, I still like hold fast to like people are sleep on Oregon. It is absolutely, I, I've thought about moving back there many times uh, since I've left. Um, absolutely love it there. And it helped too that like after um, after national I like went out and saw the coast and I went and saw more that says this place is the greatest. Also, it, um, I, I I knew about the rain. Uh, obviously, that's like what everyone knows about the Pacific Northwest it rains. But what they don't tell you is that during the summer, from like mid late June through like mid September, it almost never rains, and so it's just like perfect weather all the time. Oh. It, it's cloudy in the morning. It burns off by like two p.m. It never gets that hot, generally speaking, um, and it's just like it, it's it's idyllic. And so I had a whole summer of that, so that when it started to rain four days a week in the fall, I was like, okay, like I can deal with this because I know what it's like during the summer. So I can like tough through the the shitty part of this uh, the cycle. Uh, but yeah, it was it was incredible. Um, I f- fell in love with it out immediately. That's, I mean, you have you have an experience that not many people have ever had. That's, I mean, that's. I think at this point, I mean, it's been like that for decades now. It's a lot. The dream of a lot of high school kids is to compete at Oregon. Um, talk about your experience at Oregon. I think it's something that nobody really, I mean, yeah, it was, you see it, you see it on Instagram and things like that, but like, I don't, there's not really much, I mean, how was it? It was, it was surreal. Um, you know, I, I'm obviously a huge fan of the sport. And so I knew who a lot of the people on the team were before I went there. Um, but to like, you know, um, I, within probably the first couple of weeks there, I was like, you know, I was friends with Ashton Eaton and like, uh, you know, I was hanging out with Andy Weeding and Matt Centrowitz and, um, I ended up, uh, I mean, the second year I was there training with Jesse Williams, he was a two time Olympian. And, um, you know, you're like just casually seeing like, 
uh, me coming into practice and you know, Nick Simmons and the other OTC people are walking out of the, the track. Um, just, yeah, it, it's hard. It's really hard to describe how much like it, it is like when the people say track town USA, it really is probably one of the few cities in the world that really does revolve around running. Like it is such a big deal there. Uh, we would have our, like our first dual meet of the year for, um, invite in like april and the weather is still shitty and hayward field would get full of just like townies coming to watch track meets it is a surreal experience there's nothing like it anywhere else uh, it, is so it, it sounds yeah. like you're in the 50s back when it was like that was a show it's it really is like it, it's so strange but they people love it people really love it um yeah, and like, the town is very much like obviously, um, you know, it's a college town. It revolves around the university, but they're like, I mean, you know, Adidas and Nike have built running like wood chip trails in town, and people like make the pilgrimage to Pre's Rock, and you know, it, it's um, yeah, it is such an integral part of the city of Eugene. It is, it's unbelievable, and it's funny, like even, you know. Um, you, you walk around town with like uh, one of your training shirts is like Oregon track and field. People are like, wow, that's awesome. Or like I went to um, uh, a barber. I just like picked a random barber that was near campus because I needed a haircut. Uh, and he's like, oh yeah, I cut Bill Dillinger's hair for like 40 years. What? <laughs> uh, yeah. It just, it is such a, cool place to be and I like especially if you have an appreciation for the history and I got to be like yeah um you know I I got to be good friends I went to Ashton Eaton's wedding like Ashton and Bree became good friends um I remember we we flew to LA for uh, a dual meet against UCLA one time and Centrowitz was uh sitting next to me we got randomly assigned seats and I found out that he is a scared flyer he does not do well flying <laughs> uh, and when I, I like watch him win the gold medal in the Olympics, he'd be like, that dude is scared of planes. <laughs> <laughs> he has me blocked on Twitter for some reason. I don't understand it. Really? I am not a dice. I'm not a, I'm not a troll either. And I'm wondering if it was like me, like drunkenly bad mouthing Salazar and somehow got him. But I never tweeted at him in my life. And I'm like, oh, well, shit. <laughs> uh, Matt's, uh, Matt's an interesting guy. He's a good guy, though. Um, yeah, it's it's so funny to be part of that team, but it, it's so great too. And like, I one of the greatest things was being able to after you know I, I competed there for the year, and the year actually during the season at Oregon was not. Uh, I didn't go quite as well as I wanted to. I didn't like compete. I, I did pretty well. Um, you know, I placed the Pac-10 meet against some good competition and went to nationals, didn't jump as well as I wanted. I was pretty bummed. And then I PR'd two meets in a row in all-comer meets after the season ended. <laughs> it's like, damn it, why couldn't I do this during the season? Um, but I also, like, you know, I, I had another year of um, grad school. And so I stayed there and continued training. Um, and I got to, yeah, I, I trained alongside Jesse Williams, who at that point was the reigning world champion and uh, a two-time Olympian, you know, um, getting ready to, you know, he had he had only gone to Beijing at that point. Yeah. So he was going to 
uh, the, the training for the 2012 trials. And we just like, that's, that's what I worked out with every day. And I was just like, you know, my, my training partner, um, is, yeah, is incredible. Um, and so going to being able to go to the trials, um, both in 2016 and then, or 2012 and then again in 2016. And like, it was raining and I was wearing my Oregon rain jacket and hearing a packed Hayward field, like go crazy for me when I was being announced because (laughs) I was a duck. It was, it was, that's the reason I got fifth place. (laughs) I like, I, I, I PR'd at that meet in the rain. Uh, still my, my, the highest I ever jumped was at the Olympic trials in 2012. In the rain? Um, and in the rain. And I'm convinced it was because I was so jazzed up about competing at Hayward in front of like the home crowd. It was, yeah, it was surreal. So, so competing at Oregon, that, that really was what want, kept you wanting to come back to the sport after you graduated? Yeah, I, I think it, I mean, it definitely, um, it solidified that I was like, you know, doing the right thing. I was, I was on the right track and, you know, you're, I was what, 24. I placed fifth in the trials. I was like, Oh, there's, there's only one way to go from here. Oh, obviously that's how everything works. Um, so I, I moved, I moved back to Jersey where I grew up, um, got a part-time job, uh, and focused on training full time for the first year after that. I was like, you know, if I jump really well, maybe I can get a spot at the Olympic Training Center in San Diego. You know, maybe I can, like, you know, keep pushing and make a U.S. team. And that year, um, you know, I, I worked, I was a paraprofessional at an elementary school. So I was, like, working part-time with, like, third graders, helping them with reading. And spent, like, training four to five hours a day. Like, the best shape of my life. Um, had, so I only competed a couple times, uh, indoor and outdoor and it was going great. Uh, I went to the, um, I went to the Caribbean for a meet. I did my, like my first, like meet where I was paid to go travel somewhere, um, which was amazing. And like, I jumped, uh, against a bunch of, you know, internationals and it was, it was pretty good. Um, I was like, Oh, this is like the start. I'm just ramping up right now. And I came home and I had this like freak injury where, um, I started to not be able to run like jog even without my muscles tightening so much that like my legs couldn't move. So I was like, in the best shape of my life, I'm convinced that I'm going to go to USA's and like, you know, have the best showing of my, my career. Um, and then I can't run like, for no apparent reason. It's like, what the fuck? Um, it was a, like, I'd, I'd overstressed my system and, um, yeah, it, it was, it was miserable. <laughs> and I, yeah, I, I didn't know what to do at that point. Um, so I, I dropped out of USA's that year. I was dumbfounded. Like, do I, do I keep going? Do I not keep going? Um, I decided that I wanted to keep training, but you know, th- there's not a lot of opportunities for a uh, high jumper on the professional circuit you know, to make a living. So I had to find a way to support myself. Uh, took a job as a high school teacher. Um, 
one, because that was what I thought I wanted to do with my life. And two, I knew that I would have the flexibility and I'm able to keep training. Yeah. Um, and, and I, yes, went to being a full-time teacher, still training for three to four hours a day. Uh, wow. And I did that. There were tears. Um, and had some ups and downs, still was like very competitive, you know, went to indoor and outdoor nationals and um, had, had some good seasons, some seasons that were just okay. Um, but got to 2016, felt like I was in the right place. Uh, I was also self-coached that whole time. Uh, I was just coaching myself, um, writing my own workout plans mm-hmm. and Got to 2016, was working with a coach again, felt like I was, you know, trending in the right direction, quit my job halfway through the year so I could focus on training full time. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I hadn't actually qualified for the trials officially. It took me until that spring to get my mark. Ooh, uh, kind of talk about cutting it close. And yeah, I, I got it. Um, so I, went to the trials and at that point I knew pretty, I was pretty sure that like it was going to be the last week of my career. Um, like unless I, you know, I I would have had to PR and hit the Olympic standard at the trials, which like wasn't impossible, but it was improbable. And so I went into it pretty unencumbered by doubt and just like wanted to have fun. Um, again, pouring rain during the qualifying um only 13 people made opening height because it was raining so bad and so they ended up normally 24 people qualify for the trials they take 12 to the final um they just took 13 because they were like we don't want to have them keep competing under this uh under these conditions but i was one of the people who made it um and then i just yeah i went went to the finals and it was shitty. I did not feel great. Um, and I know I did, but it, no, hiding never feels good yeah. <laughs> as a, as, as a hyper. Um, but I had this like strange sense of peace with it too. That like, you know, I trained my ass off. I got to the trials. It didn't have a great showing there, but just getting there had been such a struggle that like, I, I walked away with my head held high. Um, I went out and got drunk and felt <laughs> great. <laughs> but, you, you know, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm getting, like... I'm getting chills. I'm getting chills from that. Yeah, because it, it, it reminds me of my last meet. Because, like, as a track person, you know, like, it's you're probably not gonna come back to it. Like, you know, that last meet, yeah. you're just like, I'm probably not gonna come back to it. Like I had in my steeple and yeah. it had poured rain and they, they delayed it for two hours. And it was like, it was an all, like an all commerce at the end of the year. And it was like, well, let's go for an all, like let's go for a national call offer or not. And at this point it rained and I knew that it's improbable that I'm going to be able to run a PR in the steeple and when the rain, like, when the uh, track is wet, but then like things yeah. go wrong. And in that last K is just like, it kind of is like, kind of just like a little bit of a memory stream coming. This is like, man, we've been this far. <laughs> and so it's a little bit of like a, I, I don't know if like other people have felt it as well. It's like where you just know it's like, 
I will probably never do this event again, but it's like, we've gotten this far yeah. into it and things aren't, this is not the highest of the highs, but it's, it may be one of the higher of the highs. And then it's not because of the event itself and going well, it's because, man, we're here. <laughs> we're still here. After all these years, we're still here and we're, it's, it's a strangely calming feeling. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I, I have not taken a single high jump since the Olympic trials final in 2016. Oh. I have not felt compelled to. I have, yeah, I, I, I walked away. It's funny. So that, um, I, I used to, I, I jumped, um, for a club team called the shore athletic club, uh, like the Jersey shore. And the team actually has a really great history. It's, it's pretty cool. Um, it's one of the older clubs in the country going back to like you know, early 1900s, um, wow. great legacy of, um, you know, Olympians. Actually the, the guy who convinced me to join the club, um, was an official at a bunch of my meets in high school. He was a 1956 Olympian in the race walk. Elliot Denny. Oh, yeah. One <laughs> wonderful men. Like, I, th- this guy is like one of the best men in the world. Um, and he is still like, he's still involved in the sport, still officiates, still writes articles about like professional meets. Just like, I can't. Um, so Robbie Andrews is a good friend of mine. Yeah. Um, we grew up in town, uh, like, across, like right down, basically down the street from each other. Robbie's dad and sister still compete for the Shore AC. Um, Robbie still always, every time he's, he's a mist, he calls him Mr. Dedman. He can't call him Elliot, calls him Mr. Dedman. Because <laughs> he has the respect for him. Um, so, he, yeah, I've I been competing for them. And um, I got an award that year at the, the um, they hold a banquet. You know, I got like Athlete of the Year, whatever it was, Field Athlete of the Year. And they also gave like a lifetime achievement award to Frank Gagliano, Gags. Yeah. Who's you know, one of the most famous business coaches um, yeah, probably in the country. Uh, you know, and throughout his career has coached I forget how many Olympians at this point and still coaching New York New Jersey Track Club. Yeah. Um, and I had never met Gags before the banquet and um, Afterwards, he, he walked up to me and introduced himself. And wow. I was like, oh, I, I was a little starstruck. I was like, oh, my God, it's good. How, like, how did you feel? Were you just like, uh, yeah. Like, yeah, I was like, oh, this is so cool. I was like, oh, yeah. uh, Justin, you know, I know a bunch of your athletes. Uh, it's so great. And he's, he asked me, he's like, well, are you, are you going to keep jumping? And I was like, you know, I, I think that I gave it my all. And I, you know, I put my heart and soul into it and I don't know that there's anything left for me to do. And it's like, you know, sounds to me like you're done. And I was like, you know, if, if guys can say this to me, <laughs> I feel pretty good of the fact that like, I, I hang in, I'm hanging the shoes up. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, that I, was like the final, like, that's, that's, thumbs a, up. that's amazing. I've, uh, I've heard like, uh, my, my coach, one of the coaches at, at Tiffin was a uh, the athlete uh, for Florida, uh, Gray Horn, and he like. Oh yeah, I know Greg. Yeah, so he like he he did really well, and then he's like I he's like was working in Santa Barbara and like still training, and he's like yeah, it's just impossible. Like 
Because, like, unless you're, like, top three, top two, like, in your event on the field side, it's, like, is that really – it's tough to make a living There's on There's no sponsorship it. money. There's no, like, you can do the European circuit, but you're not going to get that much. I My my one regret in my career is that I, I had the opportunity to go to Europe, but I never took them. And that was – yeah, I, I never competed in a European meet. That That is the – one great regret I have. So that would have been so cool. Is it dying um, legs and yeah, it's no, it it, I mean, your your story is very much very different than a lot of things that we hear, and I think, um, yeah, I, I, it's a different perspective that I don't think anyone hears. But I think a lot of the, what you're saying is very much alike to. There's a lot of parallels with with every training style. I think you mentioned earlier about muscle memory and I've talked and talked about it consistently now that I'm like, I've coached, I coach two athletes now when it's like, well, why do I run slower? Or why do I run a certain pace and not faster? If I feel good, it's like, because you're not running that pace. You have to teach your body to be able to do exactly what you need it to do and not anything more. <laughs> and so like hearing like different yeah. event groups and it's yeah. like, yeah. you guys, do so much at the same time and so like it becomes natural and yeah and there's a reason why like i mean there, there are people who claim they jump prs in practice it never actually happens like you don't <laughs> no one does the, the same level of competition that they do in practice that they do when it comes to meet day or race day and that there's a reason for that um yeah it's yeah it's just you're you're, you're getting your, your mind to understand the patterns so that when you do get to the point where it's time to do it, it's just it's second nature. You don't have to think through it. It just, it happens. And yeah, it, you, you can almost be an autopilot. And that's when you're, I think most people compete their best is when you, know, you, you can take your, your mind out of it and just you know, let, let your body do what it knows how to do. Um, yeah, I think that is kind of the key to athletic success, especially, um, I think, in the technical events and track. It's just, yeah, it, you don't want to be like, yeah, there are so many cues you can think about. And I, I've done, like I said, I, I, I trained for the multi, so I've, like, I've pole bolted, I've thrown shot put, I've done, like, all you know, all the technical events at some point, except for hammering. hammering. Yeah. Um, but can't, like, if you're actively thinking about what you're supposed to be doing while you're doing it, you're already messing up. You're already screwed. <laughs> you, know, you have to just relax and let it happen. You can have like little cues to remind yourself like, okay, speed up, do this, do that. But you can't like make hard technical adjustments while you're in the process of doing something. Because if your mind is that active, trying to change your body while it's in the middle of doing something, you're just going to throw it even more out of whack. You have to just let muscle memory take over and guide you. And yeah, that, that's how I, I think I, when I was at my best, it's like a very Zen state that you get when you're competing. You just walk up and you know, we're going and do it. I feel like it's like that for like anything in running really. Like if you get too much in your head, you're going to screw yourself over. Like no matter what you're doing, like if you're running a, if you're jumping, if you're like on, doing a 400, if you're doing a marathon, like no matter what, you, you should 
like you have to have that muscle memory. I, I think it's super interesting how like every event has that like what like what Chris was saying. Every event has that muscle memory tied to it. There's that par- cool. there's that parallel yeah. to it, and I think I I distinctly remember my bad races in college, and a lot of that was just the freakouts. And I was like, I need to adjust. I need to adjust. But like, I don't remember much about my best races because it's always like, it just clicked. That's all I know is like, it just clicked. And then yeah, I was never really a collegiate athlete, but I can, I can say the same thing. Like the races that I did my best in, it was just like, I was so out of my head that I wasn't focusing on anything. Like when you, when you have a bad race, it's like you replay in your head, what was going through it. Like, this is what went wrong. This is where I messed up. And nine times out of ten it's mental so yeah so what are you, I, what are you up to now in running so yeah just, that's that's actually like a lot of the transition now so like you've now started running yeah you know it's funny i um i've always liked running uh so my i had like roommates in college who were cross guys and they're always like dude you're a cross guy at heart and i was like maybe i am but i can't do it. It's not good for me because you know you don't want to build slow twitch muscle yeah. while you're trying to cultivate fast twitch. Um, but like I occasionally on my off days in grad school, I would go on like jogs, and you know, I, I've always like had a little bit of an affinity for um, distance running. What do you say? Would you say maybe the dice that influence? Because like you're one of the Absolutely. you're one of the like. The only two people that I can actually like know that, or there's three. There's a thrower, there's you, and then I just remember hearing a name, Jumper Jenny, is the only people that were like field events people that were on Dicep that were part of like the big, big names on Dicep. Yeah, no, there were like very, yeah, very few of us. Um, yeah, I, that definitely contributed. Um, just like being a track nerd, you know, there's just a lot to nerd out about when it comes to distance running. And yeah, I was like, you know, I, I read once a runner and I, like, I was doing all like the track stuff um, or the running stuff, but I read running with Buffaloes and all these other distance event things, but never really did it. Um, and then I, I started, obviously once I stopped high jumping out there, I need to do something. Uh, so I was running a little bit. I was playing, uh, soccer i grew up playing soccer so let me i could play like you know pick up soccer i uh, started rock climbing um which was great i still well not right now but uh yeah. still love rock climbing and um it was actually i uh i went through a pretty bad breakup uh, um in 2017 and running was like the thing that got me through it like 100 percent. i would be at work i used to work um in the down in Manhattan, kind of near the World Trade Center um, at times. So I could go and run along the Hudson River during lunch. So I had an hour for lunch. I would just like do three, four, five mile runs along the Hudson River. Um, it was beautiful. Just like a great way to like get out that energy during the day, get my mind off of things. Um, so I did that for a while and then I would stop and I would go and I would stop. It was kind of on and off. Um, but I, uh, you know, I, I guess about a year and a half ago now, I started to get more like systematically into distance running. Like, oh, you know, maybe I could like, I, I don't have 
particular goals for myself. I was like, let me just like, you know, start running consistent mileage and being conscientious about, you know, when I'm running, alternating my runs, doing some tempo stuff. Um, yeah. And so it's still like, it's very casual still. Like I, I think the most mileage I put in a week now has been like 32 or 33 miles. Um, but I, I was for a little bit of some, I was going to try to train for a mile. Um, there was like the Brooklyn virtual mile. I wanted to see if I could break five. Um, but I ended up, uh, <laughs> tweaking my, uh, my calves, uh, pretty, they were, they were just oh, no. not feeling good from all the sweet work. Um, uh, which is too bad because I did, I did this, it's funny, I was following a workout that um, Steve Finley, who's the coach of the Brooklyn Track Club here, and was actually my teammate when we were at Oregon together there, <laughs> he was like doing this like virtual training plan for everybody. It was a, a 16 by 200 workout, um, and I just like killed the workout. I did my last, I think I did my last three 200s were all like under 27, you still, still, like, still have that fucking speed. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the thing. Like, I can, I can very easily, like, I, at any point in my life, I think I could go out and break 60 in a 400. Like, that's not, like, hard to do. <laughs> it's harder for me to, like, think about running longer distances. And so, I was like, oh, this is, this is going to be great. Like, I'm going to get to race a shorter race, and it just didn't happen. Yeah, I um, I, I just do it for fun now. I, I've gotten up. I did uh, yeah, a virtual half, I guess, this summer. Not because I was doing it for anything, but because I wanted to for fun. Um, my girlfriend's a runner. She is going to do... <sighs> well, I, I don't even remember my time, honestly. I just... Like, <laughs> I really it, it, was, it was just for fun. Um, yeah. Like literally, I was just like, I want to do a thirteen point one mile long run, essentially, just to like say I, I didn't even like try to race it. I just was like, let's just do it. Um, but now I can like, yeah, I, I did a, a ten miler this week that felt really good. I'm starting to get like, you know, more consistent with it and uh, running, you know, uh, comfortably at like faster times. But it's also strange for me. Um, you know, I, I was never like, obviously I'll never be an elite runner, but I know like what elite do because a lot of them are my friends. And so yeah. it's easy for me to have this connect of like, okay, well, if I'm not going to like, you know, I'm not going to break 15 minutes for a 5k, why would I race a 5k? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's a strange thing for me to approach. Um, and that way I, I can, I don't think I can ever be that serious about racing because I know what good is. and I know I'll never be good. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it, it's just fun for me, which is I think is probably better. You, you know, yeah. I mean, even even with this, like, I mean, I'm still I'm still competing and trying to try to qualify for my my first trials, hopefully in 2024 with a for the marathon. And like, it's still like it's I think there's some perspective in that. Like you, you've competed with people at the highest levels. You've competed with the Arguably the greatest athlete ever, Ashton Eden, and you just kind of like there's it's everything's relative. So like one thing that I've realized like even with talking with everybody that I think as we've gone on to over the last ten years we've cut everybody that was kind of shitheads from Dicebat. 
Like we like our group throughout that's continued on. It still talks pretty often. It's like there's a lot of people that can still compete at the high level, like Zach, who we've had on before, and and there's like there's some kind of humility to it because even Merber was a was a die satter in the past too, and he has that kind of yeah. he has a humility to him too. Never met. Never met Kyle at all, uh, but he has like just from how he posts and everything like that. There's that humility to it. There's just like there's kind of a like a, just an understanding across the board that it's like, hey, this we're probably better than the majority of the world at this, but like we also understand that where we stand relative, and we can't be arrogant about it because like hey, you're given a chance to be to do well at this, but to be arrogant about it is like. Also, like, I'm going to get my ass handed to me at any event <laughs> if we just get out there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, yeah, it, I think it's important to have that perspective. And I think that, like, you know, I, 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 I can roll up to a meet when I was at my, you know, in my pomp and, like, no, okay, I'm going to win this meet. Um, but I would never, like, I would try to approach it that way. I would still, like, if people who were jumping like six two were coming up to me like asking me for advice, I'd be happy to give it to them. Yeah. You know, I might have to like focus on my my own competition and you know approach it slightly differently. But like it, it's yeah, I, I think staying grounded is is super important, and that's why it's always super funny to me when I like you know occasionally I'll go to track and do workouts and you see all these people who are like all kitted out and like trying to be super serious and you know running these workouts I'm like okay like you probably think you're a pretty good runner <laughs> but like, I, I i know really good runners and they would they would dust you and you're wearing just like I, I they're just wearing like t-shirts and just going and doing this <laughs> you know yeah you know what it is you know what it is I know, I know you like Tracksmith, Chris, so I, I don't want to be no, go ahead, go ahead. about it, but I, whenever I see someone like out for a casual jog, like in all Tracksmith gear here in New York and like $200 Nikes, like that person probably sucks. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, I, I had, a, I had a buddy that, uh, that ran a, uh, Ran a 1507 5k for that tracksmith challenge thing and a Kenny Chesney and a Kenny Chesney caught him to that was great. That was great. <laughs> it was like it, it's it, it's funny. Like for me, like I like I like wear to wear just because it's, it's it's cool to wear after out of that, but it's but it's it's very very interesting just seeing like that it is very the case. Like I don't think people understand that like. Because just because like my my old my old teammate Gondu, he's run sixty one and a half, and he ran like thirteen forty and and twenty eight minutes in the ten k, and a high level Canyon guy, and you would think like and you would think that he's just like super no, he's just every person that I've met at the like majority of people that I met at the higher level, super low key, and just super relaxed to yeah. a certain point like the the. The hotheads, the like, in their heads, like you hear it a lot, but the majority of people at their level are just like, all right, we're cool. <laughs> yeah. Even uh, I know I've named up him a couple times now, but like even you know, Matt Centuritz has a very like very high key 
uh, personality externally. Like if you just like look at him through social media or watch him race, you would like this dude is like up his own ass. Like he is such a, you know, so full of himself. I'm not saying that he can't be like that sometimes, but he is the most down to earth guy. Like I, he, he, him, when you like talk to him on a casual um, conversation, is just a very different persona than the the guy that you see um, when he, when he's running. And I know, uh, yeah, a lot of the people that I know are are like that. Not all of them. Some of them are. Yeah, you know, I, I, I can think of uh, a couple of people who are uh, definitely tools. <laughs> the, the funny thing is, like, of who you mentioned, like, I'm a big Centro fan. Like, I don't, I, like, I, I said they like him blocking me. Like, legitimately, I'm a huge Centro fan because, like, the persona of him online. Because I've heard the same thing. I've heard, I've heard outside of this is like, he's a pretty low. He's a pretty. He's a pretty just like. He's not an arrogant guy when he talks yeah. to him in person. Hey, but like his. He doesn't. He doesn't drink. Doesn't party. Yeah. Doesn't like. You know, it's not, he's that, not like, <laughs> that guy. Like, that guy. Like, plays video games. Yeah. And, like, and and but the thing is, like his, because there's there's a there's a two kind of thing to it too. Like, and I think it comes down to people that are competitive, and people get to that level of just being like, we call we call it a tiff, and we also just call it oh, it's like gamers. Like when you get into when you get on the line, there's a different kind of mentality. Like we're friends. Yeah. Like you know everybody here, and you, I think you mentioned you mentioned it earlier with saying one of your top two best memories is like, it's like you're friends, but when we get on the line, I don't care who you are, we're going. Like this is this is mine today. I'm gonna go after it. And I'm gonna try to. I'm like, I'm confident enough in myself. As there's no arrogance to it. It's like there's a confidence to it. It's like I am gonna put it all on the line here. And yep. that's that's one thing that I've like with, with somebody like Centro. It's always like there's a little bit of a raw emotion that I don't see from distance runners very much. And I'm like, I mm-hmm. love seeing that. There's there's a little bit of like there's a there's a there's a flash. Yeah. There's some sauciness to us. It's like cool. Like we need that. We need it in distance running because you know, I'd say the one thing that I really hate is that my favorite thing about watching the field events is the there's a little bit of a uh a show to it like high jump and long jump there's a clap there's like there's a lot of like there's like they want that hype and that was some of my favorite things to watch was always that lead up and it's like there's always like the attention's gonna come to me now and let's go and i'm gonna give you a show and we're gonna get over this and it's like yeah, I, I did with distance running. It's just like, yeah, I just uh, we, we we did tactical. This has been my training for the last couple of months, and I'm just like, okay, this is boring as fuck. I hear the same thing from the same people, but it was like for very few people that I yeah. see it from. I think somebody like somebody like Centro. Um, I, I love seeing things like that. It's great for the sport. It's great to have some personality to it. It's the same thing as like why Bolt was yeah. so popular. Bolt had the same personality as let's say like Galen Rupp. Like Bolt wouldn't be as popular yeah. as he's now. I saw him on Stack a couple years ago, and he was like, he, uh, he did a, he did a talk, and he's like, 
yeah, it's pretty nice. Like I look, I look around, and it's like I'm faster than you. I'm faster than you. I'm faster than you. I'm faster. I'm like, but there's a show around that. There's a show around the entire yeah. thing, and I think with a lot of people, it's like, I, I think you have to have that. I think you have to have a kind of duality. It's like, well, you you may be very much, hey, let's play some video games. We get home, but I think with running, especially in business running, you have to have a reason for people to sponsor you. I mean, I hear like, yeah, absolutely. no, but I, I bet you hear like a lot of it's like, I mean, I think I see some influencers getting paid more than, than like even professional runners. And it's like, I, oh, think, yeah. I think you need to have yeah, some kind of personality. It's yeah, you, unless you are the, the top of the top. So what, what am I, one of my training partners actually, um, she's, uh, she's a Olympian. She went to Brazil for Antigua. Our name is Priscilla Frederick. One of my great friends. We actually went to the same coach in high school Been friends ever since. Um, and we were both working with him when she qualified for, for Rio. Um, she like, she cleans houses in her spare time, um, you know, to make money. And like, she started like a, an eyelash um, company to like try to make money. You have to wow. scrimp and save. Yeah, she is a like, yeah, she she is a professional athlete. She's an Olympian trying to qualify to go to her second Olympics, and she yeah owns a cleaning service. Um, and that's how she okay. supports herself. That's insane. I hate that. <laughs> No, it's, yeah. I mean, I've heard from the very beginning, the one thing is like, my coach is a dice batter. Um, and I think it's really, really the reason why I went to my first college. So we talked about spikes on our recruitment trip. But I mean, he was very honest. He's like, if Brandon Bethke can't make it as a professional runner, like most people won't be able to make it as a professional athlete. Like, he's like a 13 minute yeah. 5K or like, he's like, you have, like, and, and at this point, it's it's so different. And I had I had guys that ran like ten, under ten two, and were like, "I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go pro." And I'm like, "You're not, man. I'm sorry. Like, I like you. You're you're talented, and you're probably one of the best in the country. But you have to understand where our sport is, and I don't like it, and I don't agree with it. But there's not enough money for you, and you're not gonna be making money like a professional, like a real professional athlete, which is sucks. Like, you really should be making money like a like an yeah. NBA, like some of these other athletes. And I think if it was if you think, if I think we had the popularity that we had in the 1950s, as we do now, like now, I think we'd see some, like we'd see some, like some track and field athletes making that much money because it was a show back then. Yeah, and it's it's, it's it's also it's very difficult if you're not a distance runner, especially to find as like there are training groups around the country of distance runners. Um, you know, the in pockets here and there, and like you can, you know, um, th there are ways you can capitalize on your the currency. Like you can get a job at a shoe store, yeah. you can run road races. And it's not going to like support you yeah. running a road race, but it's we gonna, can make it like a five hundred dollars here, like six hundred dollars there. Like Gandhi's yeah. doing that right now, yeah, just going and making money. Yeah, you can just kind of chip away at it. Um, and I know people that like you know you're not going to live a lavish lifestyle, but you can support yourself. There's nowhere outside of the Olympic Training Center where there's like a group of field athletes, especially in the, the jumps that train together. 
there's Altice, I guess, in Arizona, um, which is like a private thing, and they pay for coaching. Um, and it's a whole like a camp set up. There's the Olympic Training Center, but there's no like equivalent of you know OTC or the the Zap team down in North Carolina, or um, I guess they they change sponsors now, or you know the like all all these like teams that are NYNJTC. You know, like pro and semi-pros who have a professional coach, have some sort of sponsorship link and like support a group of people. If you're a field athlete, there's nothing like that available to you. Yeah. You're on your own. That's going to be extremely only, hard to want to continue professionally then. Yeah. It, I mean, it's very, it's a very solo pursuit. Like I said, I, I coached myself for, for two years, um, three years actually. Um, and it, it's hard. And I probably like, if I had a coach to work with, it could have been, maybe I would have done better. Maybe I wouldn't have, I don't know. I mean, the typical thing Um, I see is people going and being assistant coaches at a, at a college. Yeah. That's typically what I see. And, and they have an outside job to that. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's the reality of like really any situation outside of distance running. In distance running, you can make money on the roads. Uh, in the field events, or even the you know, sprints events, like as much as like indoor is a thing, it's only a thing in college. You're not making that much money from it. You can't make money in indoor. Everybody only wants outdoor. No, you get, um, yeah, the only time I, I won, I won money at USA is a, a handful of times indoor and outdoor um, for top eight finishes. But never, uh, I think I, I probably, I probably made less money as a track and field athlete than it cost for a semester of me going to college. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, I, I don't think I ever, I don't think I broke 10 grand um, in like earnings as a professional track and field athlete and as a professional track and field athlete for four years. Well, like, well. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I probably, I probably just broke five grand, <laughs> and that's including like cop travel too. Yeah. That's <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's the reality of the sport, and I, I think a lot. Yeah. I didn't want to be an asshole and like be that person to my teammates, but I'm like, I'm a track nerd, and part of being a track nerd is knowing all the events too, and knowing how much people make in this stuff, and it's like it sucks. That's the reality of it. Yeah, but. Let's let, let's finish this off with like let's, let's do some let's do some fun things here. Um, All right. I got I have, I, have, I have a couple questions here. So my questions are going to be uh, really quick track related event. So track related question. Uh, it's going to be three three sets. So favorite facility that you've jumped at? Hayward Field. Hayward Field, without a doubt. Um, you, you can't be Hayward Field. Favorite meat that you've jumped at? I mean, the Olympic trials are impossible to compare to, but outside of the Olympic trials, um, Mount Sac. The, uh, the OG Mount Sac. They're yeah, going to redo that. And uh, I guess facility you've always wanted to compete at. That you never got a chance to. It would have 
would have been really cool to compete at the bird's nest in uh, Beijing. So when I was um, when I was a freshman in college, uh, summer two thousand seven, our team actually did a trip to China. Um, so Princeton every year does a uh, every yeah. four years they do an international trip, and we we went to China while the bird's nest was being built, competed against a bunch of Chinese athletes at um, uh, a university in Beijing, and then competed against another group in Shanghai. Which both of which were incredible too, and those were some of my favorite track memories. Uh, but like seeing the bird's nest from the outside, it was just it was so cool, and I could only I could just imagine competing from it. It was yeah, I would love to compete there. Um, the next question would be uh, favorite die stat meeting. Uh, there's a couple. All right, uh, I'll give you the top three. Um, oh yes. So there's Foot Locker Northeast in 2007. Um, so I went. Um, it was it was I was a freshman in college. Went to Foot Locker, and there was there was a picture of this somewhere. There's like 20 die statters uh, who were there. It was a huge group of people. Um, just like randomly met up. That that was awesome. That was the most like concentrated group I ever had. Um, one of the like worst and greatest uh, was um, Tyler King, who ended up being my teammate at Princeton. Uh, Is he the super like old, like he's he's the one that's created like some like events for USATF? Like, see the distance runner guy. He's a distance runner, but he, he's not that okay. guy. Okay. He, he's not involved with the USPTF at all. Uh, but yeah, what his what his handle was? It was something about Minnesota. He's from Minnesota, uh, but he like came on his recruit trip to Princeton. I was a sophomore when he was being recruited. He like showed up in my room because my roommates were cross runners, and he was like, "You post on Diestat." I was like, "What the fuck is happening?" Right oh now? no! Oh no! But that was yeah. That was that was. Terrible but fun, and then um, probably uh, the first time AJ and I actually met up in real life when I was in Oregon, and we were like, "What's up, man?" <laughs> like, we've been posting uh, for a long time, but we hadn't met before. Um, yeah, just like that's a nice that legend. Somebody who, yeah, and he was just like, "You was my buddy when I lived in Oregon." Because of Dystat, like I wouldn't have, like, probably hung out with him at all if we hadn't been like posting on Dystat forever. Still, still tweet at each other every once in a while, and you know, uh, it's been a while since we caught up. But yeah, that's. Uh, AJ Acosta is a. I mean, I was a SoCal guy, so like I definitely knew who AJ Acosta was, and I think I added him as a friend on MySpace back in 2007, 2008. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he had the original victories, and I was like, "Who are yeah. you, sir?" Uh, uh, I had a couple questions, and I got I got to go to my phone to this to try to figure this one out. Um, let's see. Uh, let's see. So you're a music guy. And so this is going to be my own question here. I already know your favorite, your favorite album of all time. 
I, I, I heard the podcast. The podcast was fantastic. Can you tell us what the podcast was that you were on? Because that actually was like a really cool podcast that I listened to. Yeah, it's called My Favorite Record. Uh, my, my buddy from high school has been doing it. Um, and so, yeah, just interviewing folks about you know, the record that means the most to them. I think he's in about three or four at this point. He just, yeah, it's one of those things he started during quarantine to keep himself busy. But yeah, it's been, been fun to listen to everybody else's too. Yeah, and, and your favorite album had like, so there's a, is, is, is the artist of your, your favorite album. Uh, Signals Over the Air was like my one of my high school jams all the time. Uh, my question for you would be, I feel like we all kind of have music to listen to before pump up events or pump up like races, pump up jumps three to five songs that had to be on your go-to go-to pop-ups like that has to be listened to before your jumps all right so i'll give you one that was not on the later iterations of this but it's the song i listened to when i was in high school before i won states it was like i had i when i had my mini disc player before ipods were even a thing um, and the song I listened to to get hyped up before winning states was Rebellion Lies by the Arcade Fire. Um, I don't know why I still remember that, but that was the song I listened to. And um, yeah, l- later on, it was no longer on my, my playlist, but um, it, was <laughs> it, it was there at that time. Um, the, the one that I, I, I still have it on my phone, actually, that I, I made later on um that really got me part of it was a lot of like really like aggressive hardcore and like um the uh the 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 song one of the first songs on it was um drop the world by lil wayne featuring him oh that was on that was on my public playlist back when i oh get me really fucking jacked up just pick the world up and i'm gonna drop it on your fucking head uh, um, that would get me, that would get me really jazzed. Um, and then there were, um, a couple of, uh, hardcore songs. Um, so, any victory uh, records? No, uh, well, there was like, every time I die, um, specifically Ebola Rama, which would be one of the ones that just like very aggressive, fast paced, hardcore, um, the song Okay Time for Plan B by Enter Shikari. Um, that was like one of my absolute go-tos. And uh, that, that was those were like, yeah, those were pretty much it. Just like okay time for plan B was one I would try to listen to um before I competed every time. It starts very slow and like very just like drum heavy and it just yeah, it builds to a very like a crescendo. Big, yeah, crescendo, and it just like goes crazy. And I was like, all right, I'm ready to go. So like, I, I I talked about that with some of my friends about this. Is like what I enjoy at music. It's like for me, it's not about the, the lyrics so much, but it's always about how the structure of the song goes. So like when I have a song that goes like, kind of gets to that build up to that crescendo. It's like, all right. I, I work my warm up up to that, and I've already built up my body to go to that crescendo, and then you yeah. shake out, and it's like this 
fucking go. Let's go after it. <laughs> so yeah. we have a couple. Yeah, I, I found I found the uh, the playlist on my phone. Um, I'm gonna need you to send yeah, that to me, sir. I'm gonna need you to send that to me because yeah. I really I, I need some new songs for my my uh, my pump up playlist. Um, we have some a little bit more funny now. So a little bit more funny on this side. We're just going to be finishing it off with this. Um, let me pull this real quick. I have an iPhone. It's just still so new to me. Um, Nicole wanted to drop off, but Nicole asks, please ask him what his favorite Avenger is. Oh, my favorite event. You know, um, it depends on... What iteration are we talking like film franchise? Are we talking comic franchise? There's let's go both. Let's go I, both. One of each. So I'm super stoked for the new iteration of Miss Marvel, Kamala Khan. Um, so I've read all the I've read all the comics where Kamala is Miss um, Marvel, and they're they're so good. So I, I imagine that you know not everyone's as nerdy as I am. Um, the most recent iteration of Miss Marvel. Um, you know, after Carol Danvers goes off and becomes part of the Inhumans, um, is a uh, a high school aged Islamic teen living in Jersey City um, in like like present day, and she is she is such a badass. It's such a cool storyline. It's written by a couple of my my favorite comic book writers. She is it's such a cool character. Um, very nuanced, explores like what it's like to, you know, be a teenage girl growing up in America, what it's like to be, uh, you know, deal with uh, questioning your faith, what it's like to be brown in, you know, um, post 9-11 America, um, but also be a superhero. And it's just, it's so good. I cannot recommend highly enough the the runs of uh miss marvel with kamala as miss marvel um movie avenger wise you know i, I think like i, I dr strange's powers are so cool man <laughs> being able to manipulate time like that i just yeah it's just it's it's such a like maybe again, like a very meta nerdy way to like look at our, but it's so cool. Uh, I love Dr. Strange. I'm sending them back to it. And quick questions here. Um, uh, two more before we close out. Uh, the other one's favorite candle scent because we're in spooky season. Oh, yeah. I, I always like, um, Pretty much any of the green candles that are like piney or like foresty, I, I always love that smell. Straight to Oregon that's, right now. That's always, <laughs> yeah, I, I know, but that's like always. I've always not a big candle guy in general, but when I do get candles, that's that's the route I go. There we go. Uh, and then my question is going to be your favorite beer of all time. <sighs> wow! Wow! Sorry, man. Just you know it's going to come. It's beers and miles. Right. You know, so my favorite beer of all time, much like my favorite record of all time, it's it's maybe not the best beer of all time, but it's my favorite. Um, and it's actually, it's more recent iterations have been a little bit more hit or miss. Yeah. But the first run that Carton did of regular coffee. Oh, that's um, a good beer. That's a fucking good beer. 
Tell me, tell me you have the glossero with that. That coffee cup. Yeah, so I um, I did, I fucking when, when this beer first came out, I could go to local bars in New Jersey and fill a growler of this twelve percent <laughs> uh, imperial cream ale. It drinks like it's five percent. It was. It Chef's was kiss. Chef's I, I kiss in that early batches. It was incredible. And some of the, I mean, some of the iterations they've done too, and like all the, the adjuncts about it. And the St. Kitts and Nevis one is probably my favorite of um, all the like spins they've put on it over yeah. the years. But just like the base, uh, yeah, carton regular coffee is just, it's such a unique beer. And it is so good. Uh, I agree with that. That's a fan. That's, that's a beer that I remember. Such a good beer. Dude, thank you so much for being on the pod. I've had a fantastic time talking with you. Um, just finish it up. Where can we follow you? Where can they follow you? Um, yeah, I, I guess I'm on uh, I'm on Instagram, justin.frick. Uh, Twitter, I think I'm HJ Frick. I don't even remember my handles. <laughs> <laughs> That's how uh, social media savvy I am. But, uh, you know, if you, uh, you want to see pictures of my cat, uh, then definitely follow my my Instagram. It's uh, yeah, I'd say mostly what I post is uh, pictures of Susu and um, food occasionally and beer. Cool. And then you can follow Nicole at Nicole the Runner, and you can follow me at Beers and Miles. And uh, if you enjoyed this, we really do appreciate you guys leaving a five star review on iTunes. And oh, uh, yeah, we'll be back to you guys whenever the next time we come back. So thanks so much, guys. We'll see you later.